It's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday edition. Right-hander for the Giants throws. Swing and a miss! And that's it! The Giants are world champions as they come pouring out of the dugout. Circling Brian Wilson. The bullpen. Flying in from left center field. Dancing. Hugging. And celebrating for all you Giants fans. Wherever you are, learn to play the winner's way. Cause baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from baseballhq.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of July the nineteenth. It's show number twenty-eight of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll open with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Harold Nichols as well, as Jock Thompson takes a European vacation. We'll have our weekly talk with Todd Zola, and in our HQ matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Mets' Dylan G against the Braves and the Angels' Jerome Williams taking on Oakland. So it's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. More Cubans on the way. And since we're not talking about cigars, what do you say? we got to talk some baseball. Yes, it's been an interesting week for the Cubans. Not only did they have their shipment of missiles to North Korea stopped in the Panama Canal, But more importantly for our purposes, Cuban right-hander Miguel Alfredo Gonzalez could sign a major league contract as soon as the weekend and could be pitching somewhere in the major leagues within a couple of weeks after that, at least so says his agent. Gonzalez is 26 and plenty of scouts have been to watch him work out. The leading contenders to sign Gonzalez are said to be the Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox, Rangers, Phillies, Blue Jays and Cubs. Miami and Minnesota are apparently also interested but Gonzalez is reportedly not too interested in them. Hey, he is 26 years old. Maybe he wants a shot at the World Series before he retires. Also, 24-year-old Cuban southpaw Misael Silverio has defected while the Cuban team was in Iowa. But my favorite Cuban baseball story is about a player with big league experience, five years pitching for Washington. But don't look for him to be signing any contracts because he turned 102 years old Back in April, he's the oldest Major League ball player still alive. Conrado Marrero pitched for the old Washington Senators from 1950 to 1954, and his main claim to fame might have been giving up three home runs to Larry Doby, the first black player in the American League, in the same game. So, feliz cumpleaños, Connie, and best wishes to your compadres, hoping to ply their trade against the world's best baseball competition. Now for the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. As I said, Jock Thompson is off on vacation, so leading off it'll be the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols, followed by the American League report with our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. We're going to be looking at uh, three columns that are really useful for readers at BaseballHQ.com, the batting 
pitching and relief pitching buyer's guides. And we'll start with uh, the National League. It's Logan Morrison, the first baseman in Miami, of course, from Dan Becker's batting buyer's guide column. He was looking at guys with unusual platoon splits, and Logan Morrison really mashes right-handed pitching. Oh, he really does. He just kills right-handed pitching. And, you know, the thing to look at with Logan Morrison, I've seen him getting dropped in some leagues lately because he, he had knee problems and was out for a while. But, you know, here's a guy who's only 25 years old and uh, and really has a, a skills profile, a guy who could hit uh, around 280 and 20, 25 home runs a year, uh, someone in a keeper league, I think, to look at if he's sitting out there on your waiver wire. And really kills right-handed pitching. I mean, an OPS of over a thousand against right-handed pitching. And something I noticed about uh, Logan Morrison as well, Nick. Historically, his ground ball rate is up around fifty percent, which ordinarily you wouldn't really like in a power-hitting guy. But he's also got pretty decent speed. He was at one twenty-two for a speed index a couple of years ago. He's at one eleven this year, so he should be able to leg out a few hits. And he looks like he's pretty close to full value for that uh, two eighty-ish batting average. Yeah, you know, I think very definitely. I, I, and I think, you know, here's a guy who's not quite put it all together yet. I mean, he had a nice year in 2011 when he had 23 home runs, but hit only batted 247. Uh, but in, uh, in 2010, hit 283. This year, at batting average is 282. So here's a guy who's, who's not had his breakout season yet, and I think that's coming for Logan Morrison. and could be in the second half this season. All right, and we'll move over to uh, Steve Nickran's starting pitching buyer's guide column, guys who should improve in the second half. Uh, one of the names that popped up on that list, San Francisco former ace Matt Cain. You know, Matt Cain has been giving owners fits this first half, a 5.06 ERA at the break. And, but when you, when you look behind that, the skills that he displayed in the past few seasons are still there. Here's a guy who's, who's really outpitched his ERA over the last few seasons. We've been used to an, an earned run average below three, and his expected earned run average for the last several seasons has been closer to 3.7, 3.8 in that area. And so this season, the uh, we, we've had a kind of the, the tables have turned and his ERA is up too high, given where he ought to be. But that XERA is right where it should be, 3.88. Uh, his problem has been a, a really a low strand rate, a very unlucky strand rate in this first half. And a sort of an unlucky home run per fly rate. So I think every reason to suspect that Matt Cain is going to get considerably better than that 5.06 ERA that he showed in the first half. Well, you're not kidding about strand rates. Uh, the last three years before this season, 75, 73, and 77 percent, and 80 percent the year before that, all of which is quite high. Even for a good starting pitcher, we'd expect to see something around 70 to 72. This year, 59 percent. That's That's really something to notice. Yeah, it really is, and, and obviously very, very bad luck, but the rest of the skills are certainly there. Striking out 8.3 batters per nine innings, excellent command, 2.8 command ratio. Uh, so everything is there for Matt Cain to really put it together, I think, in the second half. You really like your chances as a buy-low pitcher on Matt Cain, I think. Another name that popped up in Steve's column from the National League, Edwin Jackson of the Chicago Cubs. He's been bandied about as a possible trade target, along with Matt Garza from that rotation. We've always liked Edwin Jackson, and for some reason, Edwin Jackson quite never lives up to our expectations. You know, never, never quite gets there. But, you know, if you look at, uh, look at those expected earn run averages for the last few seasons, 3.77, 3.96, 3.80, and has not been that bad in terms of his overall ERA, 3.79 in 2011, 4.03 last season. Problem this year is that that, that earn run average is up over 5, a 5.11 and a 1.44 whip. Uh, the result, I think, of again, of a low strand rate, a 64% strand rate uh, for, for Edwin Jackson. And, and somebody whose skills are still there. If you, the skills have been very consistent. Uh, last year, a, a, a BPV of 94. This year, a BPV of 83. 
So uh, skills have not really slipped at all. It's just that uh, Strand rate has gotten his ERA up. And so a guy that really could turn things around a bit in the second half, I think. Yeah, for the last four years, his base performance value, it's a combination metric that combines everything that we look at, has fluctuated, but only from about 67 to about, what, 94 or so. So 83 in, in this season is certainly not an abnormal outcome for him on a skills basis. What's abnormal is the outcomes. Right. And, you know, the other thing to look at that you have to like about Edward Jackson, he's always had a nice nice ground ball rate. This year's ground ball rate is really up. It's uh, it's above 52%. So uh, with a with a 34% hit rate, a lot of us kind of C&I hits have been going through for him. And, and certainly that with a ground ball rate like that, uh, that's going to help in the second half as well. If somebody starts picking them up, I noticed that for a guy who has this kind of decent skill set, Edwin Jackson's whips for the last few years, he's at 144, as you mentioned, this year, 144 in 2011, 139 in 2010, 151 in 2008, 176 in 2007. I don't know, uh, Nick, it, it seems like there's just something about this guy. You know what he reminds me of is Joe Blanton. Terrific skills, but he never seems to quite get the results we'd like from those skills. Yeah, you're right. You know that that seems to be there. Certainly, a lot of guys on base for uh, for Edwin Jackson, and 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 with with decent control, uh, and uh, generally not a very high hit rate. That's a, kind of a strange uh, strange outcome to look at. Finally, we also mentioned that Doug Dennis has his relief pitching buyers guide column out, and he's looking at guys who are doing well but don't seem to have the skills to support how well they're doing, kind of the opposite of Edwin Jackson, I guess. And uh, there's some buzz around Antonio Bastardo, the left-hander in Philadelphia, because of the trade rumors surrounding Jonathan Papelbon. Uh, but Doug says Antonio Bastardo may be more lucky than good. Yeah, you know, I would say be very careful with Antonio Bastardo at this point. I mean, we've got, a, we've got an ERA of 2.62 a whip of 1.40, and the whip is not that good. And the problem with Antonio Bastardo is he walks a lot of guys. His walk rate at this point is 4.7 walks per nine innings, and for a you know for a closer that's not real good. And if you look back at his monthly totals, what Antonio Bastardo seems to do is months when he has very very high strikeout rates, he he walks more guys. So we the the batters don't have any idea where the ball is coming. He strikes out a lot, but at the same time he doesn't seem to have any idea where the ball is coming either. <laughs> and so when he gets in a situation where he gets his, his good control, he doesn't strike out as many, but he doesn't walk as many either. So I'd be very careful with Antonio Bastardo. The other the other thing about him is a very high fly ball rate. Look at the monthly monthly rates for the season, 48%, 45%, 55% fly ball rate in June. Uh, the, guy, the guy puts a lot of balls in the air, uh, and that can be a real problem for a closer. All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us about the National League. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Jock Thompson's over in Ireland on his way to Europe as well, and you've graciously agreed to look after the American League this week as well. And uh, let's start again with Dan Becker's Batting Buyer's Guide columns, guys who can really hit the right-handers, and another name that he came up with, and this is a guy that we like, Kyle Seeger, the third baseman from Seattle. Kyle Seager's a guy who's doing very well right-handed pitching, and and overall having a very good season. He's 293 with 15 home runs at this point, uh, and just killing right-handers. So certainly someone to look at. He's 25 years old and really kind of coming into his own uh, this particular season, I think. It's really we're looking at a breakout year, I think, for Kyle Seager. And it's not like it's been a long time coming either because last year he really showed some signs that he was uh, figuring things out, and he's, he's getting himself into that position where we can almost – write him down in ink for a 20 home run season 
yeah, and what's what's looking a lot better this season is the is the batting average. Uh, last year, his expected batting average was two fifty nine. That was the same as it was in two thousand eleven. This year, his XBA is two eighty two. So if you can get twenty home runs at a two ninety two eighty two ninety batting average out of a guy, that's certainly a lot better than hitting, having him to hit two sixty. And a little bit tough finding third baseman in the league, especially after Miguel Cabrera soaks up forty five bucks at your auction as well. Uh, so back to Steve Nickran's starting pitching buyers guide column: guys who should improve in the second half. Here's a name that I like: Dan Straley, the right-hander in Oakland. Yeah, I like Dan Straley a lot. I think you know, I think uh, Dan Straley is. Uh, a lot of guys have been fooled by the kind of up-and-down season that Dan Straley is having. And, and uh, Oakland's been doing some strange things with him. When they don't need a fifth starter, they send him back down to the minor leagues for a while so he doesn't get uh, doesn't sit on the bench. And Dan Straley's skills look very, very good. I mean, uh, the reason that that's that's why he's been in and out of the rotation is more, I think, a um, a strategy sort of thing for Oakland than, than a performance thing. Um, he, he has a 7.4 dom at this point, but an 11.5% swinging strike rate. So that Dom could really go up in the second half. Uh, strand rate has been 63%. That's hurt his ERA a bit. But uh, excellent skills with runners on base. 8.3 Dom, 2.2 control, 3.0 command with runners on base. So uh, the strand rate is not a problem of something he's doing wrong with runners on base. I think it's just a matter of bad luck. So Dan Strand is certainly a guy you might want to take a look at in the second half who really could have, a, I think, a nice breakout. And there's another good reason for that optimism, Nick. You mentioned the low strand rate is driving Australia's high ERA, but sometimes strand rate isn't entirely the pitcher's own fault. Uh, This year, Dan Straley has left games with 11 runners on base, and the Oakland bullpen has allowed six of those 11 runners to score. That's more than half. Oakland's bullpen is normally very solid. They usually only let about one-third of inherited runners score. So if we say only a third of Straley's inherited runners had scored, that means his ERA would be nicely under four. The A's are good. They score runs. Their bullpen, as I said, is pretty solid. All of these look like reasons to take a good long look at Dan Straley down the stretch. Yeah, I think very definitely. Certainly a guy worth uh, worth targeting in the, for the second half. Steve also looked at the Cleveland right-hander Corey Kluber. This is a guy who to me, just came out of absolutely nowhere this year. He's a little older than uh, you might think for a guy who's had such limited experience, but he's got a lot of uh, opportunity to make a mark in Cleveland. He does indeed, and I, I like Corey Kluber a lot. I mean, so far what we've had with Corey Kluber is a lot of inconsistency, but there's some been some games when he's really spectacular. I mean, uh, we're looking at a, at a performance against Detroit on the 7th when he struck out 10, walked only 3 in 6.3 innings. This is a guy who's got a capability of getting a high strikeout rate. The problem he's had, he tends to give up some home runs. And in the, the games in which he gives up home runs, he gets hurt a little bit. So we're still getting some inconsistency with Corey Kluber. Overall, his numbers don't look all that bad. We're looking at a 3.88 ERA, but his XDRA 3.15, I mean, that's, that's amazing for uh, a pitcher that, nobody's ever heard of at this point yeah i agree with you everything lines up pretty well his base performance value is 129 usually we're looking at what 70 75 for a good uh, decent starter so Corey kluber for a guy kind of sneaking around the edges of the radar we won't say he's off the radar entirely and a lot of smart owners will already have Corey kluber on their on their sheets but boy oh boy if they don't please take a look at Corey kluber because you could really enjoy the dividends you know, the, the one thing that's hurt him a lot, as I said, is that that those uh, home runs, 15% home run per fly rate. But here's a guy that doesn't give up that many fly balls, 28% fly ball rate. So you can give up a few more homers if you're not going to have that many balls hit in the air. Corey Kluber overall has a ground ball rate that's approaching 50%. So uh, certainly someone worth looking at. 
just as you say that, it makes me think it might make an interesting uh, study for a research piece at BaseballHQ.com, but could it be that uh, high ground ball pitchers tend to have higher home run per fly ball rates because chances are they got the ball up in the zone where they're not strong and that therefore you know, you're know you going to be more prone to give up a home run if you give up a fly ball than somebody who gives up a lot of fly balls but also you know, is a power pitcher who gets a lot of pop-ups and strikeouts? You know that's an interesting interesting point. I think it certainly would be worth a research piece to try to see if that's if that's the case. But it certainly makes logical sense. And if you look at his home run per nine innings, that's only one which is uh, an acceptable rate as far as BaseballHQ.com metrics go. And maybe it's a case, like you said, he doesn't give up a lot of fly balls. Maybe that's a that results in more home runs per fly ball. But overall, he's not giving up so many that it's killing him. He's certainly uh, got that base performance value you love to see. And uh, finally, Doug Dennis's bullpen's column, guys who are doing well but don't have the skills to support their success, uh, Texas right-hander Tanner Sheppers. You know, Tanner Sheppers looks incredible when you look at the overall numbers. He was a guy that's been in 43 games to date, a 1.84 ERA. I mean, that looks absolutely amazing. And a, uh, uh, a whip of 1.09, uh, you think, man, this is a guy I really want on my team. But the, the XERA, when you take a look at that, we're looking at 3.91. He's not striking out that many people, a 5.9 uh, dom rate, and, and walking a few, commanded 1.7. BPV of only 43. So here's a guy that's, I think, definitely due for a fade in the second half, and I think not someone you want to uh, uh, want to, to pin your sails at. And the other thing, of course, that's happening in the Texas bullpen is that uh, Joachim Soria is back, so Shepard's role is likely to find, him, find himself uh, reduced a bit in the second half as well. On the other hand, Nick, uh, just to be the devil's advocate here for a minute, in 2012, Tanner Shepard's had an 8.4 strikeouts per night dominance and a 3.3 command, uh, that's strikeouts to walks, because he was walking fewer. And this year he seems to be walking more guys and striking out less. Uh, his home run per fly ball rate is, is down a little and his fly ball rate is down a little, so that has helped. But he has shown in the past that he's capable of getting a lot of strikeouts. Is it possible that they've asked him to kind of tone things down, but why would they? Yeah, I would say, why, why would they? I think that's the, that's the question. I, the other thing that you have to worry about, of course, with a guy at this point is whether there's some kind of a some kind of a hidden arm problem that's causing a drop in Dom from 8.4 last year to 5.9 this season. And I think that's always a concern. I know I've read about guys in the past who, who got – you know, not not a debilitating arm injury, but something that was bothering them, and it alters their delivery. And just by accident, they find, hey, I'm you know down more towards three quarters, or up up more above towards straight overhand, and all of a sudden their pitches start to dance or move, and that, you know they discover something because of the injury that makes them more effective. But it certainly is odd that in 2012 this guy's got a base performance value, Tanner Shepherd's of 104, and he was a minus seven dollar pitcher. This year his base performance value is all the way down to 43, and he's an $11 pitcher. Sometimes baseball is just a weird game. It is indeed, but a lot, you know, a lot of the difference if you look at it overall is last year he had a 40% hit, a 40% hit rate, uh, just gave up a lot of kind of seeing eye hits. This year that hit rate's down to 22%. So overall the hit rate is about where you would expect it to be, but uh, he's showing some uh, real regression from that uh, that high hit rate of a year ago, which kept his uh, ERA up and uh, getting the benefits this season. All right, Nick, thanks very much for bringing us up to date on the National League and the American League this week, and we'll talk to you again next week. 
Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat, and this week at least, the American League beat as well, here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up next, it's our regular Friday talk with Todd, with Todd Zola. This is Baseball HQ Radio. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Talk with Todd, our weekly conversation with Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com, MastersBall.com, KFFL, and ESPN.com. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really good to be back, Patrick. Before we get started uh, in this week's edition of Talking with Todd, uh, did you watch the uh, All-Star Game and or the Home Run Derby? Uh, I had them both on. I don't know that I was glued to the TV, uh, but they were definitely uh, a little more than background, but not quite uh, must-see TV. Did you get the uh, idea that because Yoena Cespedes did so well in the Home Run Derby that this is something we ought to take into consideration when assessing his potential value in the latter part of the season? Is Does the Home Run Derby ever reflect like an actual skill change or, or a harbinger of a success down the road? I don't think so. I mean, there may be an isolated incident of a, of something like that, but I think especially with Cespedes, he, from what from what the reports were, he changed the least. This is what he does, and uh, I'm not. I'm more concerned about the blister on Chris Davis than I am, uh, you know, expecting you know 25 homers from Cespedes in the second half or 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 zero homers, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah, I think I agree with you because. Um, I remember there was some talk a few years ago, and I don't know if you remember this as well, and I don't remember who the player was, but he did real well in the home run derby and then had a terrible balance of the season and said afterwards that he had adjusted his swing trying to hit these home runs, which was not really his game, and that uh, it kind of messed up his swing in the way that a golfer sometimes get his, gets his swing messed up and it kind of takes a while to sort it out. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I remembered the player as well. I mean, it, yeah, it'll it'll come to both of us in ten minutes. Uh, but um, yeah, I, you know, will it happen to a person or two? Probably, but I, I don't think Cespedes and you know someone like like we mentioned Davis. I mean, it's such an easy swing. I didn't even see that he changed it at all. And Cano, I think a lot of these guys kept their same swings and didn't go for the you know the home run batting practice type swing and. Uh, I, you know, with Cespedes, it's it's the injury. It's the way he plays. Is he going to, you know, 70 games left, if he plays 65 of them, he's going to put up, you know, top 30 numbers in, in, in the game and fantasy-wise. So, you know, health is more important to me than the fact that he took a couple hours to, to go for a couple homers. He's only hitting about 220, though. Are you worried about that as far as Cespedes? Like, you know, we talk about Mike Trout and these guys that don't have baselines. We had one year to go on. We weren't exactly sure of the baseline. We, we thought this was going to be his issue before last season. We actually was surprised by his contact and leaving a little bit towards even the walk rate a little bit. So we may have had higher expectations than, than we, we should have coming in based upon that one year or maybe a little overly optimistic. Yeah, a little concerned. And with, with, with the average of baseball being around 250, 255 now, a 220 could be like a 240 of a few years ago and we didn't think that poorly of a 240 uh so yeah concern yes but you know if, if i'm looking for a guy to help me out 
if I'm down a little bit in the standings and I lead a boost in power and, you know, I don't know, help in average but not hurt in average, he's the kind of guy that you need uh, to, to make up some ground, particularly in, in sort of a head-to-head league where you may be able to make the playoffs and then, you know, with him, you know, win the playoffs as opposed to Roto. Although, obviously, he can help in Roto as well. I heard somebody asked Chris Davis about this whole doctoring your swing or changing your approach problem that uh, some people have attached to the home run derby and he said listen every time we go to batting practice it's home run derby you're always trying to hit home runs in batting practice and that's what this is it's a a structured form of batting practice so chris davis at least thought it was not a problem mind you he wouldn't he can hit home runs very easily yeah i'm the way he's going opposite field this year such a smooth stroke and it looked the the swing looks the same and the ball the ball just goes in different directions just going with the pitch Uh, i was least concerned about that and I, I think this whole going for a home run, well, maybe in home run derby it's different because the, the pitch is a little bit slow. But I don't think it's a coincidence that there have been three walk-off home run grand slams this year where all that was necessary was a sacrifice fly. And, you know, the, all the, guy, the guy's not trying to hit a home run. All he's trying to do is put a good stroke on the ball and lift the ball in the air. And I know Matt Wieters and, and Valdespin were two. The third was a little more recent and may come to me. But I don't think it's a coincidence that... Uh, you know that these guys hit homers when they didn't, when they weren't going for homers, so to speak. And I don't, if that applies to the Derby, you know, why change your swing? If you're Robinson Cano, if you're some of these guys, you got plenty of power. Why, why change your swing to hit it further? I suppose if you want to put on a spectacle, but you know they got plenty of power to hit home runs in their natural. Just make the solid contact. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, we don't have a real good projection baseline for Yoana Cespedes. What do you mean by a projection baseline? Well, what. You know, some of the statistics, uh, batting average and balls in play, home runs per fly balls, each player sort of develops his own baseline, his own expectation. And, you know, you use, you know, the, the general Marcel means of projection uses three years. You can, use, you know, four years, five years. If you read through the HQ uh, projection uh, map, it looks to be a five-year baseline to get, uh, you know, what the, what the expectations are. So we don't know, you know, one year, it's just one data point. If Now, you guys expect five or, or use five for players that have five. So there's just so much variance around using one or two years when, uh, you know, more established players use three, four, or five that we're just – basically, it, there's more variance around what we expect. Uh, I mean, it's a point. So, it, you know, whatever it was last year, that's going to be factored into it. But there's more variance around it. And so all we could be seeing this year – we, last year we may have seen the uh, the upper end of the uh, the point. This year we're seeing the lower end, and you know the the true skill is probably in the middle, and you know that's what will be expected next year. And what happens next year will sort of you know is it is it really in either direction or is it in the middle? But um, he was you know you had to consider him a high risk high reward player coming into this season, and you know the other point being. With some, with minor leaguers, there's there's somewhat of a, a, a MLE, uh, the, the major league equivalent. We with Cuban players, it's it's you can't even get their stats. It's just when you try to do a projection, to even you know the Japanese players, we kind of we consider them to be double A, and we put them into our translator and, and get an MLE out of a Japanese player because their stats are you know on Wikipedia. Cuban stats, for some reason, you think they're giving away you know some military secrets <laughs> with the amount of home runs that these guys hit. Uh, and you know, so it's 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 just impossible to 
to, other than watching them, you know, for a couple of games and tournaments, to, to know how they did the previous year in their own leagues. Yeah, I heard that the uh, Cubans actually just shipped a bunch of statistics to North Korea in a container ship going through the Panama Canal. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Todd, you had an article a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, in early July at ESPN where you write the Under the Microscope column in their fantasy section, and it kind of touched on this, and I'd like to explore it for a moment, this whole idea of projections. You mentioned that Cespedes's single year gives you an idea with a wide variance, and I think if I remember correctly in that article, that's the point you made about all projections, that they're all subject to some variance, and the only question is uh, how much variance is there to the high side and the low side of a, of a median, which is the most likely. Right. That if we have to keep in mind that you know we need to give you a static number for those of you that want projections, but projections are a range, and there's both... You know, there, there's the, you know the old luck. You know, I don't want to get stuck on luck. It, the reason there's variance isn't just luck, but you know, skills vary as well. Uh, you know, if you, you wash the luck out of it, a guy's not going to have the exact same skill every year, and it doesn't need to be a better or worse skill. It can just be just a you know a, the same skill, but just a little bit better, a little bit worse. I'm not better or worse, but newer. You know, develop a new skill, better or worse. But, you know, you the same skill, just a little bit, it just manifests better or worse over the course of a season. Um, so we you know, we talk about, I think we've talked about this a little bit, maybe it was offline, but performance, you can look at a performance as a, as a curve, and the curve doesn't have to be symmetrical either. Right. Uh, what, we, what we produce for a projection is what you can call like a weighted average of the plausible outcomes. You know, getting getting hit by a bus and playing two games is is, is not a plausible outcome. Uh, you know, but you know, a certain amount of games with a certain skill level, and maybe he plays a little bit more games with a higher skill level and a fewer games at a lower, and, and average it out, and that's the number we give you. But the projection itself doesn't have to necessarily be a perfect bell curve. So what you need to try to do is figure out which side of the bell curve he's more likely. The player is more likely to finish on, uh, and, you know, even though the projection is still going to be the, the, the in the middle of the two, try to get the guys that are going to be on the good side of the curve and avoid the guys that are on the bad side of the curve. And I'm just trying to find some of the ra- ways to figure that out. And actually, if you knew the shape of the curve, you'd really want to also be looking for players who didn't have a bell-shaped curve, whose curve was asymmetrically large to the right side, because then you could say, I'm going to get this sort of this median or expected level, but all of the variance is towards the upside and very little of it to the down. And, and I want to avoid a guy who's in a, uh, the opposite situation where he's got a, a most likely outcome, but most of the variance is off to the low side. And I think that might even be a shorthand for uh, you know an, a very old player or a very young player would be the one who had maybe a little bit more downside, whereas the upside would be a guy who's 24, 25 with a, with a good amount of experience. So you say the likeliest outcome for a guy in this position, Billy Butler, say, is going to be 25 home runs, but there's really quite a good chance that he could hit 35 and not much chance he's going to hit five. Right, yeah, more, more can go right than can go wrong. And those are the players that we want. At least we, we, uh, we want to try to get anyway. Now, Todd, you mentioned skills, and, and uh, we've always said here at Baseball Age Creator the skills are much more stable than outcomes, and I think you'd agree with that. But you're also, it sounds like, saying that skills can change over time, and I'm wondering, now that you've started looking at this, and we have talked about this in the past, but one of the skills that 
changes and seems to stabilize with a new level is strikeout rate. Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's the initial metric that I'm looking at. Uh, there's some studies out there that that address this, not so much in fantasy terms, but you know, more of a sample side. You know, the, the the question, you know, when is a sample big enough or too small or not too small, and strikeout rates seem for both pitchers and hitters to stabilize earliest. Now, unfortunately, it's a very broad term, you know, stabilize earliest. They don't necessarily delineate, you know, good strikeout, you know, improved strikeout rates, uh, and, and, you know, are they more likely to sustain than than poor strikeout rates are? Uh, so from, you know, from a fantasy point of view, you know, I need to look at that. I need to find out if a guy who's has a better strikeout rate than he did earlier in the season is that likely to sustain. You know, Chris Davis was uh, was had a twenty five percent or so strikeout rate for two months, and it's thirty five and now thirty in a little bit of July. I'm cherry picking, not so much to say this is the case, but just to point out in players and uh, someone like Jay Bruce. Strikeout rate was 32% and 30%, and now he's back to normal. Uh, so, you know, there's examples of, you know, sort of things that happen both ways, that these players went back to their went back to their rates, which just to say that, you know, players are going to go back. You know, water will find its level, but at least the first one I'm looking at is strikeout rates because if it does stabilize, it stabilizes earlier than line drive rate or walk rate or anything else. And even if it points me in the right direction for some players, and there may be some misses that, you know, a streaky guy does find, you know, his level either way, Davis or, or Bruce returning to their previous uh, historical levels. Uh, if I get one more hit than, than, uh, than I would have otherwise, um, I think, you know, it's, it, I think it can be something to look at. It seems to be doing better with pitchers, at least early on. Um, so it's, it's hard to get historical data in a form where I can look at, you know, monthly contact rates where, you know, it's out there, but, uh, you know, player by player, a lot of these things that you want to do, you're sort of, uh, curtailed by what's available to you to, to do the, to do the studies. Let me ask you, Todd, about a couple of actual players that you mentioned in your ESPN piece a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the first one that jumped out at me was Colby Rasmus of Toronto. I watch a lot of Toronto games. I live in Ontario, and and uh, we hear the announcers saying that Colby Rasmus, oh, he's turned the corner. He's he's batting much better. He's he's finally found his stroke, or whatever these kind of things is. And yet, when you looked at him, you said, "Here's a guy who's actually striking out more and being luckier at the same time," which is not a good combination for Colby Rasmus in the long term, including maybe even for the rest of this season. Yeah, that's that's the thing we don't know. Is this a change in approach, or is it just, you know, he's striking out thirty percent of the time, but he's going to bat up at three forty four? It's somewhat supported by hitting more line drives. So this very well could be, you know, and what 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 our announcer is going to say. That's what they're going to say. But um, yeah. I think it's more of to to put pause on it that it, you know, I need to see it more than two months to say this is the new Colby Rasmus. It very well may be. This is sort of a Jose Bautista went through a similar, uh, not so much rejuvenation, but change. But there was a definite 
change in approach, you know, with, with the with the coaches. On the other hand, you know, so did Curtis Granderson, and he reverted back to his old form too. So it's, it's real tough to, you know, coach speak and, and all that sort of stuff. So I rely... I rely on probabilities and the numbers, and while it might be real, uh, I don't. I need to see it for you know again longer than two months. And thirty percent strikeout rate compared to twenty three percent is a huge jump, and he's never sustained a BABIP of three forty four before. So I'm going to need to uh, you know, I'm not buying high, or, or I'm not I'm not buying Rasmus, figuring he's going to carry me to the, the you know carry me to the second half promised land. I'm a little more concerned. If I have them, I'm probably going to get rid of them. I may get burned, but right now the numbers say he's not going to continue. On the flip side, you also looked at Josh Donaldson, a third baseman in Oakland, who's having a terrific year. Uh, there's little doubt you said that his 350 BABIP at the time is going to come down. But at the same time, he's striking out a lot less, which means the ball's in play more, which which really um, ameliorates the problem of, of the uh, decline in his uh, BABIP. Right now, I mean that analysis. You know, I think you know we don't. You know, you know, no one out there needs you or me to, to you know for that analysis. But I think the the key part is if the studies out there are true, he's going to sustain the higher K rate and sustain the higher batting average as opposed to you know why why is the batting average higher? Well, he's striking out less. What I when I'm you know saying or, or want to say or hope to be able to say this time next year is he is going to continue to strike out less. At least there's a better than 50% chance that he does. So he is a guy that if someone wants to throw him in a trade or if someone you know doesn't believe him and is looking to sell low uh, or, or sell high, I'm sorry, yeah, so that high. I would be more than happy to go out there. Although, well, no, yeah, I, was looking, I was, took a quick look at his, his strikeout rates. He, he, they've been tending downwards from his uh, – earlier days but those were in the minor leagues and and stuff like that so definitely compared to last year he's striking out fewer and more importantly he's walking more times too which could be just part of the whole Oakland uh mindset you know as far as uh you know how they coach the next level to have a 10 percent walk rate I don't know if that's still the case but it was a few years ago Right, there's an organizational bias towards teaching guys how to take a walk. And there's also, uh, BaseballHQ.com over the years has demonstrated to my satisfaction that as play- good players, especially get older, good hitters, their eye ratio, that is the ratio of walks to strikeouts, tends to improve as they go, and it's a sustainable improvement just because they're getting better. Uh, there's some argument that maybe the umpires are giving them a little more respect when they're 30 and have been around for 10 years than when they're 20 and been around for you know, 10 months and so on. There's a lot of things going on that help a player be a better, more selective hitter at the plate just through experience. Right. And it's also stuff work that shows that especially there's a bit of a correlation between walk rate and and power and not just, you know, not just on base. You know, you think of contact rate and batting average, uh, walk rate, you know, you're being a little bit more selective hitting your pitch. If you're hitting your pitch, you're hitting it better. So there's a a bit of a, a correlation there between walk rate and, and power, which is uh, helping out, or at least could be applicable to Donaldson. He's already got already got 16 homers, uh, you know, well on his way to, you know, smashing his career, well, he's already smashed his career high, but setting a pretty good level for his career high. And uh, a couple of years ago, Josh Reddick had quite an excellent power year that seemed to come a little bit out of nowhere. Do you recall if he also had a, a, a rise in his walk rate? Walk rate? Um, well, he came from... 
he came from Boston, of course. So they, I don't want to say they're the same, but they have, you know, definitely had a similar, uh, a similar profile as far as that goes. He, um, his walk rate actually is he's he's got the a higher walk rate this year. The year that he uh, last year, when he had the thirty two homers, it was only an eight point two percent, and you know with Boston was seven percent. So, you know that could be there could be a couple intentional walks for all we know as far sure. as because of the extra power. This year he's up to ten percent, striking out fewer times, and the you know the power's way down. So you know here's it's, is this the opposite of Rasmus, where the approach is hurting him in that you know he's becoming more selective and and or is he you know is it just injury or or is the you know injury leading to a change in approach um i i knew he was down only four homers so far for reddick is a little bit surprising to me you know you take yeah. a look at the the walk and the strikeouts and, and you're optimistic and ew, four homers that's kind of scary it just illustrates the difficulty that we have in saying that something that happened in the past is definitely indicative of something that's going to happen in the future. And Todd, before I let you go, I know that you've got the first of your BaseballHQ.com roundtable discussions posted today at the site. And uh, what was the question that was posed? And uh, tell us about the whole roundtable process. Well, yeah, one of the one of the uh, duties I'm going to have in my association with uh, with, with HQ is putting together a, a round table. We're going to rotate it amongst all the staff, depending upon the topic. We'll, we'll, we'll pull in different uh, staff members each time. Uh, myself and, and Brent and Ray and we'll, we'll, we'll be constant. We'll be, we'll be doing them all, and then depending upon the, the topic, we'll pull in the specialists to best address that, you know, the question at, the, at that time. Uh, today we uh, we started part one, and these things, depending upon the subjects and the enthusiasm, can become monsters, and that's kind of what this one did. Uh, the whole, you know, patience, practicing excruciating patience. And I'm mean, not going to lie, this ties back into what we talked about in the beginning, where uh, I, you know, my, my, my search, my golden grail is to find a reason not to be patient. And, you know, right now I, I agree and people that read the, the roundtable will see that, you know, people still think practicing patience is the way to go. It was sort of like, you know, they did, they, the message was, it's not that we don't believe you, but give us a reason. Show me, you know, show me, show me that this, that this is going to help me cherry pick player, not cherry pick, but pick players that are going to help or hurt me earlier than someone else might think. And I'll believe you. But right now, I'm going to believe that water will find its level, and I'm not going to treat anybody, you know, with bias. You know, that's what I'm kind of going to treat everybody. So I think it was uh, interesting that, you know, that no one out there, you know, said, you know, no, I don't, I'm not patient anymore. But everybody's open-minded, which you should be, that, you know, give me a reason. And the other side of the question was, we know that, somewhere around a third to a half of first-round picks don't deliver their value. So why are you being patient when you know that this is a, a could be a dead letter? Right. That's sort of the and, – and, and we don't want to get hung up on just the first-rounders because what that means is that there are, you know, there are two-thirds of players that are better. So – and those are going to come from rounds where, uh, you know, so it's going to, you know, in theory even out. But, you know, can – is you know, the flip side of my coin is – is there something, is there an indicator, is a, if a batter's striking out fewer times, is that a reason to believe he might be one of those two-thirds that jumps into the first round? So, you know, my, my, my quest, my crusade is to 
try to figure out those, you know, we, if we figured them out, you know, in the pre, in the, in the preseason, they wouldn't necessarily be, you know, in the ADP. On the other hand, we got to keep that in mind too. And this never got brought out in the round table is just because an ADP and these are based upon the NFBC and, and mock draft central, just because an ADP has a 35% hit rate, that doesn't mean that any of us that are doing our own projections, who's to say we would have had the same 12 or 15 people in the first round, our own personal hit rates may be better. Heck, they may be worse too. But I yeah. think it's something to keep in mind that we're, we're dealing with the you know public, uh, the mainstream uh, ADP, and you know are our own ADPs better because we knew not to put these three people in and to put these three guys in instead. Well, I, a couple of years ago, I, I wondered the same thing, and I did a research piece that ultimately I don't think got published, but. Uh, it's pretty much true even uh, at the expert level. You know, if you go, to, I went to 10 or 12 sites that had projections, loaded them in. Some of them weren't ADPs per se. They were just value, dollar values in descending order, and then you bust them into rounds. And the failure rate is pretty pretty standard, whether it's ADPs of the crowd or ADPs of the of the experts or however you want to you strike it. And the, the problem is, especially in the upper rounds, the uh, it's difficult to be an upper round player year after year after year. I mean, Miguel Cabrera pulls it off, uh, but gosh, everybody thought Justin Verlander was a sure thing this year, and look what happened. Right. Well, I alluded to it before. Uh, when you, the upper upper level player, more can go wrong than can go right. Yeah. The lower exactly. level player, you know, you can go either way. Uh, so th- that's sort of one of the problems. There is is there's not a whole lot. You know, you know, Miguel Cabrera can't do a whole lot better than he's done the past couple of years. He can only go down. Um, you know, whereas some of these other players, you know, have got the upside in them. So, but I mean, Cabrera may have been a poor choice. Well, we keep, you know, one of these years he's not going to do well. We're going to keep, you know, he's 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 consistent. He's the best. Well, we said that about Pujols too. Right. So, you know, one of these years it won't be the case. But until it's not, he is there's always an exception that tests the rule. Uh, Todd Zola, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com, as well as ESPN, KFFL.com, MastersBall.com. He's the king of all baseball fantasy media. Our matchups report is next. Stay with us. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Smith, corks one into right down the line. It may go. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. And before we wrap up this week's show, we'll have our regular Friday edition look at some pitchers and their opponents this coming week. Here's BaseballHQ.com matchups analyst Ryan Bloomfield looking at the Mets' Dylan G against the Braves and the Angels' Jerome Williams taking on Oakland. Dylan G is looking like a decent option in most leagues here against Atlanta. G's season to date 4.32 ERA is a bit misleading due to his awful start to the season, but he's posted ERAs of 2.73 and 3.10 in June and July. His skills also say he's been a better pitcher than his surface numbers would lead you to believe, a 2.8 command ratio and an 81 BPV. He's been a better pitcher at City Field this year too, with a 2.83 ERA over 8 starts. 
It all adds up to a favorable matchup rating over two at home against Atlanta on Monday. And many have speculated that Patrick Corbin's sub-3 ERA in the first half just won't last all season. And it might not, but the starting pitching report expects another fine outing from the lefty on Tuesday with a 2.93 rating against the Cubs. Chicago's hitting only 234 against lefties, 231 away from Wrigley, so the regression might have to hold off for a bit. Look for Corbin and his 235 ERA to be 12-1 and come Wednesday morning. And now here's a couple of guys to avoid. First, Jerome Williams. His last three outings just haven't lasted very long. A one and two-thirds, three and three and a third innings. And even worse, he's given up 17 runs in those starts. Williams' rotation spot could be in jeopardy if he keeps on like this. But while he's still starting, you should be staying away until we see some type of improvement skills-wise. Williams gets a matchup rating below zero against Oakland on Sunday. And finally, Scott Diamond is a poor choice as well, and frankly, it's amazing he still has a rotation spot at this point. Diamond enters the second half with a 5.32 ERA and just six quality starts and 17 tries. He's only lasted more than six innings just once in his last seven starts, and with a minuscule 4.2 strikeouts per nine, there's just not much potential here for a good outing against Cleveland. The starting pitching report agrees as well, with a rating near negative one on Sunday. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Attention daily streaming league and salary cap gamers, anyone who can take advantage of pitching matchups. Ryan Bloomfield, Troy Martell, and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our July the 19th edition. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 28 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our guest commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News Analyst this week was Harold Nichols, covering both the National League and the American League this week, while Jock Thompson's on his European vacation. Also, our regular Friday correspondent, Todd Zola, was here. Always great to talk with Todd. And our HQ Matchups commentator was BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com for these features. Jeff Tomich covers players like Freddie Freeman, Jason Ruggiano, Zach Wheeler, and others in his Facts and Flukes column. We mentioned Todd Zola's HQ Roundtable, Part 1 about whether to practice excruciating patience. And we also talked about Doug Dennis' bullpen's column about relievers who might have been more lucky than good, at least so far. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guide, pitcher's matchups, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember to check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. Feel free to join the more than 150 people who are following my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with the Fantasy Zen Master. It's Lore Michaels of MastersBall.com on our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators. 
or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.